and welcome to Campfire Conversations, part of the 2021 Hebridean Dark Skies Festival. My name is Andrew Eaton-Lewis, and in this series I'm talking to fascinating people from the worlds of astronomy, psychology and the arts about our festival themes, winter, darkness and the night sky. Campfire Conversations was created by Anne Lanter in association with the Scotsman, and this year's festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, an Outer Hebrides leader. Bethany Rigby is a designer, writer and researcher whose work focuses, as she puts it, on the ground beneath us and the space above us. Two years ago, Bethany took part in an island-going residency run by Anne Lanter, travelling to the famous abandoned island of St Kilda. Inspired by this journey, she's now working on a new research project called Outer Hebrides, Outer Space, which explores the astronomical significance of the islands from the Neolithic age of celestial observation to plans for Spaceport One, the UK's first vertical satellite launch site. I wanted to find out more about Outer Hebrides Outer Space, but we ended up discussing lots of other subjects too, from the history of shooting stars to the future of satellites. I began by asking Bethany how she would describe what she does for a living. I use the kind of strapline of emerging technologies and ancient histories relevant to the ground beneath and space above us and really that just kind of is a fancy way of saying I'm interested in very old things and very new things relating to the sky or the ground so it's kind of astronomy geology um, and to kind of unpack it maybe a little bit more I kind of use either terrestrial surfaces or extraterrestrial surfaces to kind of tether my work to looking at archaeological or geological ways of looking at those and then I'm also looking at sort of astronomical or atmospheric phenomena. Um, it's kind of wordy, kind of a roundabout way of saying it, but I'm interested in the sort of space and geology and I write about it and I don't really have a specific practical methodology that I use, whether that be video or photography or any sort of output. I kind of am quite broad in that sense. Um, but I'm really, I've always kind of felt that humans have had a tendency to kind of gaze at the sky or to dig under the ground and I like looking at the kind of folkloric or kind of significance of those sorts of acts and also the sort of technological trajectory that we're on. So I came across your work through um, a project that you're working on at the moment called Outer Hebrides Outer Space which as I understand it is a kind of archive of objects and stories all relating to what the Outer Hebrides and Outer Space and, and the connection between those things. So I, I was going to ask you in a wee while to give you some examples of things from the archive and, and, and stories around them. But um, this project began with um, a visit to the Hebrides um, as part of an island-going residency run by um, Atlanta. That was a time when it was after I finished university and it had been a couple of years. And I really was had been working on my own work for just kind of by myself for a little bit. And I really wanted to meet new people who are working in interesting fields and similar to what I was while also trying to research something that I was interested in. And I was really keen to get into some remote landscapes. So I've been living in London for about six years at that point and I really wanted to just kind of get out into some open remote spaces and kind of examine these research fields that I was, that I was wanting to uncover. And the, the residency kind of came up and it was talking about using sensing technologies on the boat. So we were 
on a sailing expedition to St Kilda and I was really interested in looking at sort of machine vision and machine learning and how we sense the remote world um and it was talking about sonar and radar and all that stuff so I was really keen to be interested in that and also just generally meeting new artists as well mm. my application for the residency was talking about looking at remote landscapes in a way that connects them to landscapes of outer space mm. um, um those sorts of sites on earth are called terrestrial analog sites and they are kind of these places that are used either geologically or environmentally or biologically that are similar to locations in outer space that we're trying to um, explore and i'm really interested in that kind of field of research of using kind of earth-based knowledge in order to understand cosmos knowledge mm. not many of us are going to be able to get to go to outer space um and it's quite nice to almost try and experience those sorts sorts of similar things that the scientists are using in order to experience those things in a way that we can kind of explore that I guess. Um, but the Outer Hebrides Outer Space started really as just mainly a collection of thoughts that happened during the residency. Um, musings on the parallels kind of and connections between the two and it was kind of been flushed into more of a book project now um, including historical stories, kind of future plans, connecting Outer Space, Outer Hebrides and some of my own parallels too that I've just kind of come up with. I gather there's a place on Mars called St Kilda. Yeah, so I was speaking to this guy called Sanjeev Gupta and he's a um, planning scientist at Imperial College London and he's working with the Curiosity rover on Mars. And Curiosity is the Martian rover which is the largest and most capable rover that's ever been sent there and its mission is to answer questions about whether Mars had the right conditions for life and they name everything they find when they get there so whether it's a, a location where they do a little bit of a drill drill site or whether it's a photo that they take or whether that's a whole kind of route that they're taking they will name these places on Mars after places on Earth and that's easier than having loads of different numbers because that can get confusing and it's better than having people as names because then it looks a bit like a graveyard, they were saying. So place names are ideal. Now, I was really interested in talking to him because he um, brought it up in something that I was watching and he was talking about this area on Mars named after Scotland. So I contacted him about that, basically. And he was saying that there's this place on Mars called Mount Sharp and it had a large unconformity. Now, an unconformity is a geological feature which shows that there's been a massive gap in time. Um, so basically, the grandfather of geology, James Hutton, is Scottish, mm. and he came up with this, and he spotted the first one, and basically came up with the idea of deep time, and that the Earth was much, much older than we thought it was going to be. So Sanjeev kind of thought that it would be great to name this section on Mars after places in Scotland, um, and particularly the large quadrangle that all these places come under is called the Torridon Quadrangle. Now, the Torridon Hills in Scotland are some of the world's oldest rocks. Um, and so this whole part of Mars is named after all these different places in Scotland. And you've got, I mean, you've got Inverness, Portobello, Eriskerry, uh, Holyrood. You've got Scalpay up there. You've got the Shant Isles. You've got Harris Bay, Lewis. St Kilda as well mm -hmm. and St Kilda is this particular drill site um, which was discovered by um, one of the scientists and they've got like a personal history as to why they want to name it St Kilda but the rocks there do have significance to like the geology and things of Scotland as well that's why they've named it after that mm. so I was just looking at all these maps and seeing all these really familiar names coming up and it's quite a 
I don't know, I just think it's quite a beautiful thing that there's this massive part of Mars that's named after all these tiny little Outer Hebridean islands. And there's one little kind of in-jokey kind of section in the mapping where there's a place called Glenelg Mm. um that's named on mars and it's a palindrome so it's spelled the same way forwards as it is backwards mm. and they named this spot on mars because that's where the curiosity rover had to go one way and then it had to turn back and go back to the same spot again so they thought they would do a little joke and call it call that one um glen elg um, but it's a it's a really interesting system that they've got for naming things and it's a very democratic system they kind of there's loads of american names and scottish names and i think part of what i want to achieve with the out the island going residency is kind of drawing up some of these maps with all these locations um, and kind of in the style of the old sort of James Hutton-esque geological maps of Scotland at the time, which kind of started these kind of big ideas about planetary and deep time and all the sorts of things that we're kind of forced to confront when we're looking at places like Mars and all that different kind of long planetary timescales. But yeah. Um, Let's talk a bit about uh, more about St Kilda itself. Um, again, a place not many people get to visit. I mean, slightly more people have been there than have been to outer space, but it's, anyway, it's still a rare privilege for, for people to go there. Um, you, you said that it was a kind of reminiscent of science fiction, was one of your observations <laughs> about it. Tell me what you meant by that. Yeah, I mean, we went there um, and we were, like you said, it was really lucky to get there. I think none of us really realised how lucky we were to get there. Um, at the time because it was fairly straightforward oh. for us um, there was like no wind or anything we just kind of sailed out and got there but then the weather changed and we were actually only we were there pretty much by ourselves for two days and I think that's why it was so strange because we were in the middle of nowhere completely remote it's got these incredible kind of sheer cliffs and then the military there and that was pretty much it it was us the National Trust Warden and the military and these big structures and I guess I say it's reminiscent of science fiction because it felt, I mean, I definitely didn't have my sea legs either. So it was a complete sensory difference to what I was used to. Um, There was kind of almost an atmospheric violence of like wind and rain and cold. And um, it reminded me of like shots in like Interstellar where they land on this like complete water world and the, the sea is just this entire being that feels like it's, completely encapsulates the entire planet that's what kind of felt like when you're on St Kilda and being completely alone I think that was more of it um that kind of feeling of being the only humans around apart from maybe a few military guys who are also stationed there permanently um felt really like an outpost almost yeah um and what you were saying about how not many you know not many people get there in outer space and things and um, it reminds me when I was putting together these parallels between outer Hebrides, outer space, and St Kilda. Um, I felt, came across the letters that, um, sort of tongue-in-cheek letters that were sent between the National Trust and NASA. And Susan Bain of the National Trust of Scotland sent a letter to NASA when she found out that there was something um, named after St Kilda or Mars, mm. kind of asking whether her members would be allowed entry to Mars as well <laughs> and <laughs> she I mean the NASA guys were in kind and also said yes of course they were but parking restrictions etc um but it, it was quite nice um I think it, it's that kind of expedition feel also and kind of knowing that you've gone somewhere really special that's mm. um really unique it's I think yeah it was a really really in, um, amazing trip and we really did feel like very lucky to have got there um, and been able to explore it for a couple of days. 
um, it was very otherworldly, mm. definitely. Mm. Are, are you quite a science fiction fan? <laughs> I would say I was brought up by a father who is a complete science fiction fan. Yes. <laughs> I was weaned on all sorts of science fiction movies and things. Um, what were the influences? Oh, Star Trek was on constantly at yeah. home and Star Wars and things. And, you know, you see the, the, um, the Irish, uh, what's the island that they film the Star Wars on? Skelleg or something. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and my family's Irish. So, you know, it's all those sorts of... Um, I mean, St. Kilda almost remind me like Tracy Island, the less tropical version as well, uh, Thunderbirds. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm really drawn to science fiction in a way that it's um, aspirational in a way, kind of utopic views of space exploration. And the way that it's presented, I feel like, um, affects the way that space industry and the way that the space industry is kind of publicly viewed as well. Um, especially when it comes to my other work and maybe more like extraterrestrial mining and looking at regulations around that. The way that space is portrayed in science fiction is completely different mm. um, to how perhaps in reality the, I guess the kind of intentions are. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, and these ideas of space forces and military in space, I think we've been, maybe right or wrongly, there's been lots of imaginations of what that already is like. Mm. Um, in the public eye already and landscapes and what the potential for the space travel is. And I think like it's good in a way that it allows for this research to be done because there's interest in wanting to see these other worlds and do this research. Um, but perhaps it makes us a little bit more of a turn a blind eye towards perhaps the less environmentally just kind of practices of, of um, yeah, ast astronomy and space exploration in general. Okay. I mean, we might come back to um, some of that yeah. later, but I, I wanted to get some, perhaps some examples of um, things from the Outer Hebrides um, space <laughs> um, archive. I mean, I mean, you, what you're finding here is this, you know, really rich history of, of, of connections. Give me some examples of, of things that jump out, a kind of brief history. Yeah, so... Um, one of them that I kind of came across was something called the Minch Meteorite, um, which is this um, idea that basically there was a large, well, the, the largest asteroid to ever hit Britain hit the Minch, um, and there's a huge crater there. And this was 1.2 billion years ago now. Um, and this is when Scotland actually was more positioned around the, around the equator. So that's where it was originally when they when they hit, and there's traces of kind of um, modified quartz crystals and traces in the rocks at Ullapool, um, and this is research done by Oxford University, and it basically they found all these kind of traces of an impact, a massive impact that happened in this location. So I find it quite amazing that there's been this huge astronomical event that's happened just in the Outer Hebrides. Mm. And perhaps, and you know, that's just like one of the sort of little connections. Another one is all of the various archaeological sites that are around Uist and Harris and Lewis as well, which all seem to have sort of celestial alignments in there, um, whether that's aligning to the equinoctial sunrise or sunset or specific stars. Um, that was something that also came out from the residency um, with um, Meg Roger, who was the artist and also our first mate on the boat. Um, she took us to some amazing kind of structured cairns and things and was talking a lot about the astronomical significance of the Outer Hebrides mm. um, 
compared to places like Stonehenge, which is, you know, lauded over as these amazing places, but actually a large amount of the population and archaeological finds are going on in Northern Scotland, in Orkney, in the Outer Hebrides. And it feels to me that there was people watching the stars a lot, mm. a long time ago, up in the Outer Hebrides. And I think that's great that we're still doing things like the Dark Skies Festival and things like that. I think there's a lot of history around that. Um, and then I kind of tie that sort of work to the ideas of like, well, the initial spaceport one plans and things that happened up in, um, up on US. Mm. So the day I got to, um, where well, I stayed with my family in Scalping, the day I got there for the residency, the front page of the newspaper, the local newspaper was spaceport one comes to Scotland. And um, that was immediately like, whoa, okay, <laughs> I'm in the right place. Cause I think, I don't know whether that's still, I know that was planning and putting on the plans for a long time. I think it's in Sutherland mm. now, the actual location. But it's really tying the sort of present and past histories of the Outer Hebrides and Northern Highlands of Scotland to this connection with outer space, yeah. quite literally with like satellite launches and things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it certainly captured the imagination for, for, uh, for a while. I mean, um, mm. uh, I assume you got to visit Callanish. I actually didn't oh, get to finish <laughs> It's on my list. Like, okay. literally, I was like, I'm going to do that when I come up in summer 2020. And obviously, that hasn't been able to happen. Yeah. Um, but that is uh, probably the first thing I'm going to do when I get up there. But that's an amazing alignment up there. Mm. Like, I've been reading a lot about it. Um, yeah, it's all those sorts of structures, and they're completely covering the landscape. Like, if you look at the, the OS maps, there's just, like, archaeological sites everywhere and it was obviously a place that I don't know what I felt we were there we were like oh this is so remote and it's so cut off and everything and actually the sea and the water wasn't it was a route way it wasn't a, a barrier mm. back when people were traveling by boat a lot more so um that was quite interesting to think about that kind of flipping of remoteness yeah in that sense yeah absolutely absolutely um so where is the um outer hebrides outer space project going next then i mean um uh, you you're doing this mapping of of um space locations kind of mirroring scotland and and yeah. hopefully there's an exhibition or you've taken part in an exhibition this summer if if that can happen um yeah what other things are happening with it where, where is it going well to be honest it's been really hard to like plan things at the moment um i would really like well i'm, I'm putting a document together that's going to be like a book of this kind of collected thoughts when it with writing and maps and images and everything so it's all in one place basically. Mm. and that's going to be the sort of outer space outer hebrides you call it an atlas maybe or an encyclopedia of all those connections and it's going to have like film stills and archival material in there and that's probably going to be the main output it's hard to i'm finding it difficult at the moment to sort of project larger ideas when I'm it's hard to like do anything right now um, but the aim is to do the exhibition with the other artists and I would really like to hold a sort of symposium or something up there at the time that I can try and gather some local stories about people's experience with outer space or like watching the stars or I think the, the aim at the moment is still to grow that collection and mm. um, rather than to like put an end point on it it's to kind of be able to just gather um, and just keep gathering really. Mm, mm, exciting. I'd like to talk about some of your other projects then and perhaps some of the themes that kind of run through them that connect them to this mm. one. Um, you did some research into shooting stars, I gather. Yeah. So this was for 
um, a journal called Migrant Journal. I wanted to write a piece about shooting stars because it's one of those things that connects the sort of atmospheric astronomical phenomena that I'm interested in and also geology as well. Mm. Um, because meteorites are pretty much, apart from the Apollo moon samples and potentially some of these asteroid samples that we're going to get back on some of the missions that are out there now, they're pretty much the only physical traces we have of any of the any of the planet that's not Earth. Mm. Um, these sort of like iron meteorites that fall and the ones that are kind of other sorts of, you know, the, the rocky meteorites, they are, are what form the basis of all of our knowledge on what Earth was like before it's like what it is now. Mm. Um, so all of the rocks we have access to on Earth are relatively young in terms of planetary terms. Um, so even the oldest rocks like Louise nice it's not that old in terms of planetary and it mm. it doesn't tell us more than what we already know about their planet so meteorites and shooting stars and those sorts of things are really really valuable in us telling telling us a bit more about the the origins of earth now the piece of writing that i did was kind of an analysis of shooting stars in general as a piece of atmospheric phenomena um, so I started by going into past beliefs about what shooting stars are. So ancient Greeks kind of thought they were like the gods just kind of glancing down to earth. Um, and that was when God was looking was when there was a shooting star. So that's where we get wish upon a star because you, your, be your best bet is to wish for something when the gods are paying attention, mm. basically. Um, and then I was looking at kind of meteorites and how they've got um, had been significant, kind of been very significant to certain cultures across um, the world. So basically before we could forge metals, it was the only metal that we had was meteoric iron. Um, so Tutankhamun, King Tutankhamun, he was kind of found with two identical daggers, one made of pure gold and one made of a meteor kind of forged into a dagger. And they were kind of seen as hugely important symbols and very useful as well. When we didn't have metal, it was useful to have some metal around for forging um, like tips of spears and things like that. Mm. Um, and basically the piece then goes on to kind of examine kind of more traditional shooting stars, kind of you know, modern day kind of meteor showers and how we kind of are interested in those in the sense of scientific research um, and how we kind of come to understand what they are now. They're not, gods glancing down to earth they are vaporizing space rocks and then it went on to kind of examining this uh, technology that's being developed by a company in tokyo um which is to develop shooting stars on demand so there are these satellites being developed which have these little pellets inside them which as they're up in the sky they'll release the pellets and they'll burn up in the atmosphere and create shooting stars and the distance that we've traveled from pure superstition it's God's like telling us a message to them becoming masters of the universe and creating our own shooting stars mm -hmm. from machines. I do think they lose maybe a bit of their magic if we know that they're being deployed from satellites. And, and what do you make of the idea of an artificial shooting star? You know, how, how does that make you feel about where we've come to as a species? <laughs> I don't know, maybe a slight despair. <laughs> um, I think... It's like, as I said, I'm, I'm always completely fascinated by the science. I really enjoy working with scientists and looking at what they're doing. Um, but then I think it's the social and philosophical implications of that, that it, it's kind of like it falls short as to how we, how perhaps ancestors think of the, the cosmos. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, the phenomena of nature and astronomy is amazing. 
and perhaps man-made phenomena isn't quite as encapsulating for me anyway they were hoping to do these shooting stars as part of the tokyo olympic opening ceremony so we'll see what they look like they might be absolutely incredible um but i think it's that that ultimate control over the environment which i personally find slightly is uncomfortable i feel yeah yeah maybe you guys feel the same about um the starlink satellites that gone up do they affect you know they affect all of the the natural phenomena that we're trying to actually observe. Yes, this, is, this was a subject that came up a bit at the Dark Skies Festival this year. Actually, a couple of astronomers have come mm. to that as something that's not a you know not a very welcome development. But for people who don't know about the Starlink, I mean, I could just say a bit about what it is and, and the effect it's going to have on the night sky. So the Starlink is this sort of fleet of satellites developed by SpaceX and Elon Musk, um, which are basically going to vastly increase the number of satellites that are going to be up in the sky. Now, satellites already, you can see them. Um, if the sky is clear, you'll see them sort of slowly tracing across. But I think he's putting up such a high number that it's almost going to basically like double or triple yeah. the number that are already up there. Yeah. Um, now, because they go up in such like great numbers, they kind of create this track across the sky, if I'm correct. I haven't actually seen it um, in person, but that really affects how we view you know, normal sky um, star movement and things like that. It will, it's an interference. Only after they put the first initial batch up have they said, oh, maybe we'll try and like paint them black or something. And it's like, <laughs> now you've already got a load of them up there. Yeah. That's why I always feel about these kind of outer space technologies is perhaps the regulation and kind of thought about the longer term effects always comes after the fact that they're kind of already there and already doing these things. Yeah. And that's, the, yeah. I guess that's the frustration of a lot of astronomers as well now is that they've, they've got to kind of, combat these very shiny numerous satellites that are up there um but then again these private companies are really actually enabling more research to be done because there isn't a huge amount of government funding going towards scientific research in astronomy or space exploration so it's a double-edged sword really which which maybe leads us into this this residency you're doing at the moment with Mm -hmm. the land art agency Uh, you, you said that you're researching the sustainability of outer space exploration and extraterrestrial mining it's interesting to use this word sustainability in relation to to space rather than rather than earth and tell me a bit about that yeah so we've just kind of just started on this now so um we're officially starting this month on it, but we've had a talk, we've been having discussions over the last couple of months. So basically the Land Art Agency was founded in response to the climate emergency and it works with artists and the wider community and kind of bringing those discussions into the public sphere. Now, the research that we're doing is called the Outer Space um, Sustainable Futures and it's an opportunity for artists to work with academics and collaborate on their research. Um, so when it comes to outer space sustainability it's hard to make it feel like it's important to us now um Mm. but you know outer space mining is happening already for profit um and we have to start thinking whether we want to try and do things better than we're doing it here um rather than immediately going and just kind of digging up parts of the moon and it's hard to get kind of those discussions going because it's not really in the public sphere anyway. It's early research stages. So we're, I'm working with a researcher called um, Julie Klinger and another artist um, called Caitlin Berrigan. And Julie is an assistant professor at the um, Department of Geography and Spatial Sciences at the University of Delaware. And her research focuses on the dynamics of kind of global resource frontiers 
and social environmental justice and sustainability. So she's looking at rare earth mining um, and how that can have social and economic um, consequences for minority peoples, minority ethnic peoples, indigenous peoples, and also obviously the environment. We all know mining isn't great <laughs> for the environment. And then she's also at the forefront of kind of bringing those discussions to the outer space into like international community um, with mining. So we're looking at kind of the kind of wider background net of implications when it comes to looking at extraterrestrial mining and the the way that the space industry uses a lot of resources from obviously terrestrial resources and generally looking at the sort of the mindset of extraterrestrial mining this kind of frontier mindset of going to a place a new place um, where we perhaps don't have the right to be digging it all up and then digging it up and kind of examining those sorts of themes but as I said we're really early stages um, and we're kind of looking at uh, I mean Elon Musk said the other day he was he said I want to leave earth laws behind and that kind of gives you a bit of a feel of like maybe perhaps the intentions behind these things aren't going to be fully on the board of environmental justice um, so we're looking at that and kind of aspects of deep time and planetary time and mining how that how kind of going into the the ground geologically and digging up sedimentary rocks is kind of a almost like a method of time travel where you can experience different um time scales through different rock types and they're basically storytelling devices similar to how i feel about meteorites and astronomy in general you're kind of seeing into the past um when you're stargazing um and yeah bringing those sorts of wider discussions into the public realm through an exhibition um, in April, hopefully. We'll see how the exhibition um, is formed. Um, at the moment, everything's is an online residency. So in the same way, this discussion, it's nice that we're kind of almost using our space to kind of facilitate all of these discussions through satellites. Um, it's quite a nice sort of thing. But yeah, I think things like that and also like dark skies festivals and things, it's, it's a really important to kind of bring these sorts of researching methods into a bit more of the public sphere. It sounds like a really interesting subject to be, be digging mm. into. I mean, I, I, I was thinking, as, as you were talking about what, what you were saying earlier about you being interested in, in looking up at the stars and also and digging beneath our feet and, and how these things are very, you know, very much connected in, the, in it seems to me, in the, in the human psyche. Mm. And there's this, there's this very romantic view of what travelling into space might be yeah. like and we'll be, you know, exploring beyond our horizons and actually a lot of what you're talking about shows that we're we're really behaving in very similar ways in relation to outer space to how we behave on earth you know we're we're, we're exploiting it <laughs> we're, you know we're, we're we're causing damage yeah. and kind of mistakes yeah it's interesting because i feel like that's definitely one part of it and then i feel like the scientific community that's involved in astronomy and space exploration is so global and so generous with their knowledge you know? hmm. um, and people work across borders across countries regardless of nationality in that sense and I think that's such a, an amazing field and you get all the astronauts on the International Space Station all different nationalities there's such a global feel to it in that sense but then hmm. when it comes to decisions about profitability and what we're going to do when we get there maybe when private companies are involved, that's where it kind of gets to the crunch of needing to be less reactionary to, to what they're doing. 
I've noticed looking through your past work that satellites mm. are something that come up quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, that was really the starting point to my more general research into the outer space kind of technologies and communication technologies in general. So my initial work in satellites um, happened when I was doing my final year at Goldsmiths, and it was the centre of my um, final project there, was I basically felt that we were completely reliant on these machines, um, our smartphones, everything, completely reliant on satellites. I literally had no idea what it was. I didn't know what a satellite did or, you know, I couldn't mm. figure it out in a way. And they were kind of these orbiting bodies that were completely foreign mm. to me and perhaps most of us. And I felt that they were also completely, um, we were completely reliant on it. And that's kind of where it all started off really was all the research into what they're about. Kind of, I started looking at the vertical perspective on the planet and that's where I started to look at the term inverted astronomy, which is rather than being on earth, looking into space, you're in space looking down on earth. Um, so the satellite eye view basically and how we've come very used to that, which is through Google maps, Google earth. Mm. We've actually come really used to looking down on the planet um, which we wouldn't be able to do if it wasn't for satellites. We wouldn't be able to see that sort of view. Um, and the fact that I guess they're, they're rare earth minerals encased in these machines that are kind of just orbiting around us. And yeah, I find them really fascinating machines. Um, and that, I guess it feels like there's a lot of my works revolved around that because it was the starting point a few years ago and everything's kind of trickled out in little tributaries from that work. Um, so maybe I'll distance myself from satellites <laughs> in a bit. <laughs> Are you optimistic about the future of space exploration? I am. Yeah, I think already there's always all these discussions happening and that there's people trying to work on bringing these ideas together. And I think, like we were saying about science fiction, it's a, I've, I don't know, I, it's an optimistic, utopic view, I think, of space exploration. You know, with the moon landings and things back in the sixties, oh. it was a real like achievement was to do these things. And I mean, it's been a great year for science. You know, we've got uh, the vaccine, we've got people landing on the moon again. It's been an incredible kind of time of achievement. And I still get really excited when I hear about um, these rovers or these um, machines going out and landing on asteroids and things. I still it still blows my mind that we actually have photographs of Mars. You know, I just think that it's accelerating really fast. Um, yeah. And we just need to maybe just keep a handle on what is happening on the decisions that are being made rather than be reactionary in terms of our politics and our treaties and everything. And just be really careful about just being mindful of the, the difficulties that have happened here in the past in terms of mining and Inju like environmental injustice and damage to land that we can't really go back on um, and realising that that is definitely something that can happen um, and that it is a global commons it's not really mm. anyone's property um, I think that's where those difficult discussions come in is um, who owns it if we go and get it and I'm curious and slightly unsettled Yeah, it strikes me from what you've been saying that there are a lot of lessons about how we behave here on earth can be learned from how we're beginning to behave. Yeah, it's like a cyclical reaction of actions in outer space can learn from what we've done here. But then if we go and 
mine on outer space and we do it really well, then we can apply that to practices here on Earth. So that was one of the big, um, that's one of the big drivers behind extraterrestrial mining is saying that if we manage to get robots to do it and do it really well on the moon, then there's no reason why we can't do it here using the same methods and stop all of this um, human exploitation, basically, when it comes to mining. Um, and if we can do it safely and more environmentally friendly, then it's that kind of cyclical reaction, which is quite interesting, which maybe is why I always kind of try and tether it back to humans and Earth-centred activity. Um, and also I feel like all of our kind of endeavours and research and everything, even if we try and get away from like ancestral beliefs about space or folklore, it ultimately does kind of play into all of that. And um, thinking about those philosophical histories is something I find really fascinating and researching those. So maybe that's why it keeps looping back to Earth again. You've been listening to Campfire Conversations, part of the 2021 Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, which takes place at Anlanta on the Isle of Lewis, as well as online throughout February. The festival is supported by Caledonian McBrain, an Outer Hebrides leader, in partnership with Callanish Visitor Centre, Loose Castle College, UHI, Stornoway Astronomical Society, and Gallon Head Community Trust. Campfire Conversations was created by Anne Lanter in association with The Scotsman and presented by me, Andrew Eaton-Lewis. The sound was mixed by Hamish Brown. If you'd like to find out more about the Hebridean Dark Skies Festival, visit Anne Lanter's website, www.lanter.com.